you know, and I kind of felt like I had given it my all, like this way of life of doing the right thing and following the rules and sacrificing and it didn't work out. I think I was primed for a rebellion. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. Today's guest is Molly Bloom. Molly is a keynote speaker. She's an entrepreneur and the best-selling author of Molly's Game, which was adapted into an award-winning film by Aaron Sorkin. Her book chronicles her journey from college student to L.A. waitress to building and operating the largest and most notorious private poker game in the world, where she made as much as $4 million per year. Her games featured hundreds of millions of dollars and included players like Leonardo DiCaprio, Ben Affleck, A-Rod, and Tobey Maguire. She has appeared on media outlets such as Ellen, Vice, The Los Angeles Times, NPR, and many others. So let's give a warm welcome to the highly inspirational and resilient Molly Bloom. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You have one of the most inspirational stories I've ever come across. And I don't think maybe a lot of my audience isn't familiar with the book or with the movie, but I think it's a good place for us to to start with some context. So let's go back to where it all started. Like, how did you go from, you know, you leave Colorado after figuring out skiing wasn't for you, you moved to LA, and then you end up running like one of the largest underground poker games ever where people at one point were losing $100 million a night. There was a $250,000 buy-in. You get raided by the feds. Like, how did that all come together? You know, I was a really focused student and athlete growing up. I grew up in a, a family of very high achievers, a lot of expectation, and I had Olympic dreams. And I was skiing for the U.S. ski team. I was ranked third overall in in North America. I made it to the Olympic qualifier event and I crashed. And it was kind of like, do I have four more years in me? I had already had this intense surgery when I was 12 years old where they fused the top 11 vertebrae in my back together. And I had two metal rods. I just didn't have it in me to do more rehab and rehab the injury. And and so reluctantly, I walked away, you know, and I kind of felt like I had had given it my all, like this, this way of life of, you know, doing the right thing and exercising discipline and following the rules and sacrificing and, and it didn't work out. I was headed to law school. I had just taken the LSATs and I, I was a very serious student and I just decided that I needed a year off. I just needed a break. And the only reason I went to LA is because of the weather. <laughs> because as a skier, you just, you're constantly chasing winter. Even during the summers, you're going to the Southern hemisphere to, you know, look for snow. So I went to LA and, you know, because when you're young, you, you're not really like hyper aware of your intentions and where you're at. You just, you're just kind of reacting to life. I think I was primed for a rebellion, mm. you know, and I got to LA and I'd never felt so small or insignificant in my whole life. You know, I was working in clubs and restaurants and getting treated like crap. And one of the jobs I had was working for this real estate development company. And and the the CEO asked me if I would serve drinks at, at his poker game. And I went to this poker game and I didn't know what to expect. And it was the who's who of the world sitting around that table. It was A-list actors, like 
Affleck and DiCaprio, but even more interesting than that, it was, you know, these tech CEOs that had huge companies. It was the heads of some of the biggest investment banks in the world, heads of the biggest movie studios, politicians. I was super fascinated. And I also, at the end of the night, because people were tipping in chips, made a lot of money. Mm. And I started to observe these games and see how they worked. And and I really, I saw the hold that it had on these very powerful people. And I started to sort of put together a plan to start my own company that would produce these events. Somehow that worked. <laughs> I, you know, I started my own company and I kind of became the go-to game in that world. And the games were enormous and I was making millions of dollars, building this incredible network, learning about finance and real estate, I'm investing in stocks, I'm investing in art, you know, just kind of just down the rabbit hole. And that's kind of where it started. And I guess that's the the answer to your question. How did I end up there? And it seems to me that a lot of it came down to your identity where you felt so lost and broken when you got to LA in a way, because you just had this massive, I think, letdown with with skiing and then watching your brothers have all this success and the relationship with your dad that I felt, I feel like in a way, this poker game filled you up in a way that those things couldn't at that time. And it became almost like this addiction in a way, right? Where no instead, of, instead of wanting to do it because you thought this was like the way out for the rest of your life, you're like, wow, like I see how easy this is. I see all the money. I see the power. I see the greed, but things were going really well for you with this. It's not like it was fully legal until like nearly the end. So like, walk me through how things started to unfold. When did things start to get really bad where you started to get sloppy with the games and people were burning you and you had to move locations and and then everything kind of toppled from there. Yeah, sure. And I think that your, your comments on it are are absolutely right. And, And I think it started before the ski accident. I think somewhere around 12 or 13, I guess when I became aware of myself in the world and the expectations of other people in the world and started to believe the stories that the media said, like that you have to be this perfect person that's pretty and skinny and athletic and successful and sweet and, you know, all these things all these expectations. And I don't know, I just, I I went from being this like really free, happy kid who was super present in the moment to being like in my head all the time and anxious and, and always trying to measure up and always trying to fill my cup with external stuff, you know, which we know isn't the way. But when I started running those poker games and started making all that money, I felt like someone, you know, I felt special. And that absolutely became a drug. No question about it. Because, you know, the plan was to get in, make millions of dollars at a really young age, learn this skill, build this network, and then do something more sustainable. So yeah, in the beginning, it was a dream. You know, it was so cool. It was a big adventure. And then as in any other industry, when you get successful, you start to gain enemies. You know, everybody wanted what I had and was trying to steal the players. And some of the players and one player in particular in the game felt like I was making too much money. And he had always kind of been the ringleader for these games around Hollywood. And in the beginning, he was super nice to me. And I was a novice and I would learn from him. And then I became more skilled and and more empowered. And he didn't like it. And he kept demanding that I cap the money I'm making and, you know, just stuff like that. And 
I wouldn't do it. This was my business. I had built this. I had traveled the world recruiting these players. I had put my own branding and spin on it. And I just wasn't going to like bow down to some guy just because he was powerful and famous and, you know, wanted to feel like the boss. And I ultimately ended up losing the game in LA. And so, you know, would have been a great time for the exit strategy that I, that I talked about. I'd done this for six years and, you know, it was never the kind of thing that I felt like I could do forever. It was a crazy life. You live at night, you're constantly like collecting money. I mean, it's, it's very high adrenaline. It's very high volatility, but not a sustainable lifestyle whatsoever, right. you know, yeah. but I was pissed, you know, and I felt like I had something to prove. So I was like, I'm going to build the biggest poker game in the world and then I'll get out. Mm. <laughs> but I, I need to show this asshole that he's, you know, he can't have this power over me. So anyway, you know, because I'm young and still kind of dumb, I'm like, F it. I'm going to build the biggest poker game in the world. I'm going to show them. And, you know, this was, this was an important year in your life. This was 2008. Yeah. You had a lot of stuff going on, but building the biggest poker game in the world on Wall Street in 2008 because the economy had just crashed. You know, it was it was not it was not the easiest thing to do in the world, but I was just so driven. You know, I, I was just so so driven to not only prove myself, but I was scared. Yeah. You know, this thing had given me so much identity and so much meaning, and and it made me feel like somebody special. And for someone who has never felt that, I was willing to do anything to continue living that life. So I went to New York. You know, it was a whole different story than LA. There were all these games and it was darker and more intense and more dangerous. But I ended up recruiting my butt off and figuring out a way to sort of break into this this scene that was very well-defined, very saturated. Same game writers have been running these games for 20 years. And, you know, I just said to myself, like, you got to find your way in. And so I, you know, I leveraged my contacts and, and then also decided that, you know, because so many people were getting stiffed in New York games because the game runners were kind of running this Ponzi scheme where they would only pay you if they got paid, even though they're taking money off the table every hand. I knew I had a solid reputation and I decided that I would, I would guarantee the games. I'd be the bank so that people could feel safe because what we know about the customer experience, what we know about human beings is that if you can make them feel safe, if you can give them security, it's such a huge leg up. And particularly when it comes to money. So that was the deal and ended up building this game. It was a $250,000 buy-in. I talk about it that I saw someone lose $100 million in a night. And that still happens as a runoff from this particular game that I started. People have lost close to a billion dollars. And I don't say that with any kind of pride because now that I have perspective on it, I think that's totally unhealthy and sick. But at the time in my like, you know, sort of messed up little world, it was a huge victory. And then I didn't just stop there. You know, I was on it. I was on one. And I was like, no one's going to ever put me out of business again. So I got to I got to build the smaller games too and the variants of Texas Hold'em and you know and and I hired so many people I had so many games going on and I had so much money on the streets cuz I was guaranteeing these games and it was just madness. And I think when you got to New York things really started to fall apart, you know, I think yeah. your your addiction started to manifest itself in a pretty bad way. I think the greed it seemed like got the best of you or now you were just so focused on 
proving these people in LA wrong, proving yourself right, that you let certain things slip away from you. You let certain members of the mob into your game and you really didn't know what was going on. You were getting burned left and right for what hundreds of thousands of dollars. When did things start to become illegal? Like there's what people don't know is most of what you were doing was legal. You made a one small switch in the way you were paid and that immediately made things illegal. Right. And I knew that I was doing that for sure. Mm. And you're absolutely right. I think in LA and in early days in New York, I'd, I'd still really kind of known who I was and stuck to these core values of, I care about these people. I care about this game and I care about my reputation and my name. And, and then it kind of somewhere along the way. And, you know, it, it definitely coincided with heavier drug use and heavier drinking. And, you know, I started worshiping different things yeah. like above all, you know, money, power, the drugs definitely relaxed my inhibitions, you know, in terms of the risks I was willing to take and the moral decisions I was willing to make. Things started to get really crazy. So up until this point, I've been doing everything legally. I had this event planning company. I was paying my taxes and I was operating on tips. I put that in quotations because basically I was in charge of whether you got a seat at this table. There's nine seats. I was also in charge of whether you you know, how much credit you got. So people could walk in the door with nothing and walk out with $5 million. How would that work? If it's a player that I know super well and I have a financial history with, I'm extending credit. If it's a brand new player, you got to post or someone that I trust has to vouch for you. And the thing that kept me so safe other than, you know, doing my own research and, and vetting people, you know, at least for most of my career really extensively was, to stiff this game would be social suicide. These were people that were on CNBC in the morning, that they all did business together. They had huge reputations. If they stiffed a poker game, it could be in the New York Post. Like People were doing deals at the game. So to stiff this game would be social suicide. And that kept people pretty honest. But up until this point, you know, I'd been doing everything legally and the winners tipped and they tipped a lot and the, the numbers were huge. And then I got greedy. You know, and I also got reckless in, in as much as I started taking bigger risks on people, putting people in seats that I wasn't so positive could pay if they lost, just really hoping they won. The kind of self-sabotage stuff, you know? Yeah. And I started taking a rake, which means a percentage of each pot, which put me in violation of the law. But I still had a fair level of confidence that the consequences of that wouldn't be too terrible because up until this point, Poker was never brought up under this federal statute because of the language, the language in the federal statute that I could have potentially been convicted of said, this is about games of chance, not skill. So games of chance like blackjack and poker is a game of skill. So it continually been thrown out right before I got in trouble. That decision got challenged. Poker was thrown into that charge and it was held up. And so now a new precedent exists. Mm. So I was taking a rake. I still thought it was probably going to be a misdemeanor. And then it became a felony. And then things got ugly. Yeah, things got ugly pretty quick. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offers plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic, 
and free of fillers and contain less than three grams of sugar per serving. This includes Organifi Green Juice, which I am now using in my smoothies, either after a workout or for a great on-the-go snack. It's loaded with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Cutting down on caffeine is a big initiative of mine as we head into the new year, and Organifi's Red Juice is gonna help me do just that. It's basically a superfood fruit punch that gives me a jolt of energy without the caffeine, and it only has two grams of sugar. If you aren't into smoothies, don't worry. Organifi products are super easy to mix, and you can add one scoop to a glass of water. So go to www.organifi.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug for 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash Doug and use the code Doug for 20% off any item. Now back to the show. You're in New York, you're running these games, you're getting stiffed, and then now you're taking a rake to kind of essentially make your money back and then make more money on top of that. And then the mob comes to you and essentially like wants a piece of the pie in exchange for protection. You say no, you end up getting jumped by somebody from the mob pretty badly. Yep. And then shortly after that, you're arrested. So walk me through, like, how does the story kind of end and to the point where now you're you're getting indicted by the feds, they're coming in with automatic weapons, you're facing 90 years in prison. And- yeah, so the feds had put a confidential informant in my game because they were following these these Russian guys who were playing. And the Russian guys were on the side running this big insurance auto fraud scheme and they had alleged ties to the Russian mob. So the feds were really interested in what they were doing. They started hearing about this game, the $100 million losses, et cetera. So they threw a confidential informant in the game. And when I started taking a rake, he you know, reported that information. And so in 2011, the feds seized all my assets. They didn't arrest me. And they said that we'll let you know if we want to talk to her. And two years went by and we hadn't heard anything. And wasn't your bank account really, like negative $10 million at this point or something? Yeah. yeah. When they seized my assets, the balance read negative $9,999,099. So, and you know, in this country, your property, unlike your personhood, doesn't have the presumption of innocence. So mm-hmm. if you get accused of a crime, you are presumed innocent until proven guilty. Your property does not have that same right. So they can just say, we believe that you've made your money illegally and we're taking it. Now you can sue them, but then you have to go on record kind of talking about your crimes. <laughs> so, right. so it's if you're right and you weren't making it illegal, then you go on that route. But if you were, then you don't. So anyway, I moved back in with my mom. I got clean. I was living in the mountains of Colorado in this like tiny little town. I didn't have any money. Most of my friends were nowhere to be found. I went to this crappy little rehab in the swamps of Florida. <laughs> I still thought I was like a big deal. And everyone there was like, we don't know who you are, yeah. <laughs> which is what you need, right? You know, and, and then I, I, I started trying to put my life back together. And all that took about two years. And I finally got a job, moved back to LA. Can I have a fresh start? This was about a week before my 33rd birthday. And I was like, okay, so, you know, I'm back on, on track again. Had a job. And then 17 FBI agents arrested me in the middle of the night with machine guns and high beam flashlights and the whole nine yards. And they put this piece of paper in front of me, the United States of America versus Molly Bloom. You know, I was put in jail. And when I got out, my mom had to fly in from Colorado to put up her house to bail me. And when I got out, the press release said I was looking at 90 years in prison. Also, I had a day and a half to get to New York City to go to the arraignment. And it was so sketchy. There were so many Russian, like 
mobsters in my case that I'd never even heard of. I was just thrown into this case, this, this gambling case that cast a really wide net. And so life got real again, real fast. Wow. And it's crazy how you were able to persevere from that moment. Like if people think about it just a few years prior, you had a gun in your mouth, you were jumped by the mob, you had pretty much lost this thing that you've spent the last decade building, right? And your whole identity, your whole career, your whole self-image was wrapped up in this thing. And now you're facing 90 years in prison for a crime that I'm sure you knew, like you really didn't commit. So in a way, as as far as what they were trying to tie you into, right? So like, how did you begin to like rebuild your mindset after that moment to continue to fight for your freedom and and really not go to prison for the time they were trying to put you away for initially? Yeah, I think I was in survival mode and, and that was the fuel and that was the motivation every day. And then the lawyer that I found to represent me is a really like good and decent and impressive human being who kind of reminded me of who and what I wanted to be in the world. Yeah. And he was sort of a great role model and reminder of sort of like the ghost of the past of of who and what I wanted to be. But, you know, for that year, it was survival mode. I mean, luckily, my attorney had a great reputation with the government. He was a former federal prosecutor in Brooklyn, who went after the five crime families fearlessly, just a decent human being who holds himself to, you know, integrity. And he was really clear with me, we've got to show that you recognize that you have done something wrong, and that you have a real commitment to turning your life around. So, you know, sort of making sure that we're telling that story, and it's backed up by real action, was kind of a full-time job for that year, awaiting sentencing. You went to work. You you got clean, like you said, mm-hmm. you know, for a period of time. You did what you got a job. You I think you were maybe you volunteered or something. And then I was working in a clothing factory downtown. Yeah. And then you wrote a book through all this. So what inspired the the book? Like you decided to write a book right before you're getting sentenced, deciding if you're gonna get sentenced to prison or not. So, you know, I'd started writing the book before that because look, I, you know, <clears throat> here you are, you're in your mid thirties, millions of dollars in debt, about to be a convicted felon, social pariah, tabloids are telling the story. And what they're saying is like this, like young, you know, country bumpkin girl in a tight skirt served drinks at a poker game. And it's like, look, if you're going to tell the story, tell the story. The poker princess, right? That's what they called you. (laughs) Yeah. The poker princess. And I knew that I needed, I needed a rebrand, you know, and I also needed a solution to this incredibly suffocating financial situation I found myself in. And I needed a job and I needed money and I needed to tell my side of the story. So I really thought, okay, this is a unique story. If I can monetize it properly and get it out there in a big way, it's the only solution I can think of. So I started writing that book and then I couldn't publish it because I got arrested by the feds, you know? And even at my sentencing, the judge was like very concerned about this book and and everyone was concerned about it. And so I kind of thought I wouldn't publish it. And then and then sentencing happened. And, you know, how do you go into that day? Everyone thought I was gonna go to jail, prison. And everyone thought I was going to go to prison, especially because of the numbers, because of how much money I was making. Because the government doesn't like to show that you can make these exorbitant numbers in an illegal way without making an example of you. So that's why everyone thought I was going to do some real time. But, you know, the judge was really into the the way I'd spent the year. 
And he, I think he really had a lot of trust in Jim. And then I, you know, also a lot of the people from my case showed no contrition. They were sitting courtside at the Knicks games and, you know, continuing to gamble and be in Vegas. And, and so like that also worked in my favor. And I had really incredible character letters from judges and this woman who has this center for abused children and, and women that I did volunteer work with. And so it all worked in my favor and I ended up not going to jail. But then you're like, okay, survival mode is over. And now it's just, how do I move forward? Right. Now I'm really screwed. You know what I mean? Like now I'm a convicted felon mm. and everyone knows it and nobody wants to pick up my phone call and I'm humiliated and ashamed. And by the way, again, started drinking and using again. Then I really had to kind of pull from within, Yeah. you know, because after something like that happens, what did I do? I just go back to my mom's house, mm. you know, to this like little small mountain town and no one's coming to save me. Right. And you so, can stay there forever, you know? Yeah. So I want to dive into your addiction story more. So how did this, how did this initially start to manifest? Was, was addiction just was like drugs and all the alcohol was that just there as part of the lifestyle of the poker game where people were doing it? Or were you doing this to, to numb pain and deal with some stuff that had continued to come up throughout this process? Ever since I was 12 or 13 years old, I guess I started to feel at war inside. I completely lived for accomplishments and I felt extremely unworthy, extremely unworthy. I come from this really high achieving family. My brother's skill sets presented at a young age. Jeremy was number one in the world in skiing at 18 years old. He won three world championships, competed in two Olympics, played in the NFL. My middle brother's a, a Harvard professor and a cardiothoracic surgeon at Massachusetts General, the Harvard Teaching Hospital. I mean, you know, like, and then I also had the ism where I just, I felt unworthy. I never felt good enough. It was extraordinarily painful. It haunted me. I couldn't figure out how to not be in pain or to be, you know, sort of like in that state of unworthiness. So for the first 22 years of my life, I tried to use accomplishment and success to ease that. And then I'll never forget after I retired from skiing the first time I did ecstasy. I'll never forget it because it was like that voice was no longer there. Mm. That unworthiness was no longer there. I was no longer on, felt separate from people. I was just a part of. I just felt like it didn't, it wasn't hard to be alive. And, and then, you know, started my party lifestyle, which still ambition and success until the very end always came first. But you can believe that I was taking things to chase that feeling whenever I could. And what that looked like for me is, you know, I would party with my friends at night, but then it became also Adderall because Adderall allowed me to kind of like bypass the depression and then Xanax, you know, curbed that anxiety and sleeping pills so that I could quiet my racing mind at night and pain pills so that I could overcome whatever. So it was, you know, I, I had this like very controlled disciplined, almost like pill habit in which I said, this is, you know, I was like, this is my solution for how I feel. And this is how I want to be in the world. I thought I could manage it. And we know what that looks like. Yeah. You know, 
tolerance goes up, toxicity stays the same. <laughs> and you're around all these other people that have their own addictions or spending millions of dollars a night on in a poker game. They're like, well, my addiction must not be that bad because I'm only, you know, doing some ecstasy. I'm doing some Xanax. I'm doing a little bit of Coke. Yeah. I'm doing some sleeping pills. This guy just lost a hundred million dollars. Like I can't be that bad. Right. Yeah. And you know, I lived in, I was in LA and, and everyone I knew partied, like I partied. Right. And actually like didn't get up and get their shit done. Slept all day. So, right. you know, I, it's like who you, whoever you're surrounding yourself with. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I've heard you say that you got sober and kind of twice, I guess. And then you got, you went to rehab when you first got notified by the feds, you know, you moved back to Colorado. Yeah. And then yeah. I heard when you got sober the second time, which will be coming up on five years, I think soon here. Congratulations right. on that. You said you really had to start to do some of the inner work that came along with recovery. So what does that healing process look like for you over the last five years? Cause you've been through a lot. Yeah. So this time when I got sober, it was, it was about eight months before the movie came out because I knew that I guess my whole life I was waiting for that thing that was going to make me stop feeling that way inside. Yeah. And I, man, Doug, I really thought it was going to be the movie. You know, right. like, sure. Here's one of the most like prolific screenwriters of our time writing my life story. How does that not check the box, making you feel special, making you feel like someone. And it didn't do it. You know, I'd worked so hard to create this, this second chance because Aaron Sorkin didn't want to write the movie. No one wanted to write this movie. Everyone was afraid of this movie. And so I had to just relentlessly shop this project and get laughed out of rooms and tell and have people tell me that no one's going to make it because there's so many powerful people and whatever. So like, this was a, this was a journey to get this done. And the movie's going to come out eight months and, and I'm still as bad of a drug addict as, as I ever was, you know, and it, and it wasn't going to fix it. And so I just said, there's got to be a different way. If this doesn't work, nothing's going to work. You know? Right. Yeah. So I moved back to Colorado. I got sober, you know, and, and I was always able to do that. I was always able to put down the substance for a while, but then the catastrophe of my personality <laughs> would always bring me back to the same place. And I found a mentor or a sponsor, just a deeply spiritual woman who said a spiritual life is a practical life. It doesn't need to be this woo-woo situation. It's about becoming a woman of dignity and honor. It's about practicing these principles that you're going to learn about in all your affairs. It's about ceasing to make life completely about you, about how you feel, about your goals, about who you want to be, like starting to move away from the selfish life and into more of a life of service and a life of community. Finding her was so instrumental in my life. And, and she had something I wanted. She had this freedom about her. I could see that there was no inner anguish. There weren't layers. Her ego wasn't anywhere to be found. And she wasn't impractical. She was rational. You know, and that was a big thing for me because like a lot of people that I've met that practice certain types of spirituality or whatever, like it's just not for me. There's a lot of sort of impractical shit about it, you know? And, and she was just very practical and very real and very free. And so I, I said to myself, I'm going to do what she says. And then I became part of a 12-step group and, and I started meditating, which I hated the idea of meditation. Sitting still, being bored, these things are, are like 
death to me, you know, but I kept looking at all this research and all this science behind what meditation can do for someone's brain and how it changes the brain and how it allows you to see the fear and hear the inner critic and feel the, you know, observe the resentment and observe all the shit and then detach from it and rise above it and focus on, you know, where you want to go. Because as an addict, as an alcoholic, as someone who risked life and limb to feel special, I was completely owned by this dysfunctional thinking and by this and by my emotions. And I needed to not be owned by those things. I needed to be able to start to do work on that. So, you know, for with meditation, I sat down the first day for 30 seconds and then built the practice. And then I went through the steps. You know, I I looked at my resentments and and what my part was in them. I looked at who I'd been in the world, what were all these maladaptive strategies I had adopted to get what I want, and I started to un- unwind those. I did an amends tour where I, you know, traveled around the country and made apologies to people and and then, you know, I I live in the practice which is continuing to meditate continuing to try to align myself with something bigger than myself and continuing every night to look at how I showed up in the world and where I could do better. And then things started to change in a big way. It wasn't like I had to get through life sober somehow. It was like I started to enjoy being in life and want nothing to do with seeking oblivion and seeking numbness. And, and you know, there, <laughs> there have been times in this five years that that's not the truth either but I knew how to deal with it. You know, I went through a crazy infertility struggle where I was, I did nine consecutive rounds of IVF. There were days where I was not happy to be alive, (laughs) but I had the tools, you know? Yeah. Well, gosh, and congrats to you on your recovery and your sobriety and being so open and sharing about all these things that you've had to get humble about and and work on so that you can be who you are today. And and now you're going to be a mom here shortly. You're, as we're talking today, you're six months pregnant and like yeah. you just said, you've battled and persevered through these struggles of, of getting and maintaining a pregnancy. So I want to talk to you about parenting because I know you've, I heard you talk about this a few years ago where you had kind of done a lot of thinking about how you're going to raise your kid being somebody that is so intense. You're so smart and competitive and you just know what you want, but you've also had the experience of having a parent like that in your life. And you saw how in, in many ways it was detrimental to your, to your upbringing. So like, what thoughts do you have around raising your child that might differ from the way that you were raised growing up? Yeah, I'm obviously thinking about that all the time now. Something that my parents did that I really appreciate is they were willing to not be my friend and to be unpopular in order to prepare me for the world. Mm-hmm. So there were no screens. There was no like... Oh, you can do your homework later. We had to show up. We had to get uncomfortable, whether it was in sports or school or chores or commitments. We were not let off the hook at all. And that I appreciate. My dad always says like little kids are are just hedonistic creatures and all they want is pleasure and all they want to do is avoid pain. And if you feed into that, then that's who they become as adults and they're not prepared for life. In those ways, I really want to emulate that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make it personal, though. You know, instead of like, oh, you didn't go to training today. 
dot, dot, dot character assassination or whatever compared to your brothers or whatever. Like I want it to be like, oh, you didn't go to training today. Okay. Well, I understand that that's a choice you made, but there are consequences and, and those consequences are happening now, but I love you. You know, that kind of thing. When I was little, I didn't know how to manage the fire inside and there was no backing down. I mean, I got in trouble at home and, you know, at, at school because I didn't know how to manage my emotions. And when you just punish a kid for that over and over, it doesn't help. What I want to be able to do with my kid, with my kids, is teach them about their emotions, teach them about these these tools and these resources we have to use breath to calm down the nervous system, to use meditation, to be in observance of the things that are going on and, and not necessarily get hooked into it, to communicate, to have a forum. And so I think in these ways, like, you know, in some ways, I hope this little girl is nothing like me, but if she is, <laughs> I think I'll know better how to deal with it. There's some things she could get from me, but I, I hope she doesn't have that sort of a lot of the things that we've been discussing, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I think managing emotions as a kid is is super hard, right? Because they don't have yeah. necessarily the tools. It's not taught in school. And then a lot of parents maybe <laughs> haven't come to terms with how they're managing their own emotions. And and then right. when you go up, grow up in an environment like you did that was super competitive, it was kind of cutthroat in a way where... Mm-hmm. super athletic family, super academic family, and there's no room for error. It's tough. And I know that you lived under this idea of this constructive suffering and that you have to put yourself in hard situations in order to prepare you for life. But I think that can be detrimental too, because our body will always revert back to homeostasis in that even if there's no pressure, even if there's nothing that's going on that is fearful in our life, we will create that fear yep. based on what we do in, in other areas of our life. And so with, with that said, I know that identity has played a massive role in your life and the lack of the identity as well, where you had this identity that you were, that was, you were the skier and then you lose that. And then you move to LA, you, your identity is wrapped up in going to law school and then you don't do that. And then the poker and then the, the movie, the book, like where, where's your identity at now? Like who is Molly Bloom? And what do you want to, you know, contribute and give back so that it's something that that's healthy and it's meaningful and it's not something where you fall back into some of these addictive patterns that uh, you unfortunately fell into in prior years? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these are all great and hard questions. I don't know if I could say who is Molly Bloom. I, I think we're always changing and right. But I can tell you that I show up every day and I, I try to be better. Like th- that's one thing that, that the program has taught me and that has sort of become my new path of achievement. I know that I source my self-esteem so much more inside than outside. You know, I should be more active on social media. I should, you know, for like business stuff. But there's something about it that just doesn't feel authentic to me. You know, it feels like sort of how I used to be. And like, there are people that use it so well for their business and everything. But, you know, for me, there's always this danger of like, here's my cup, I need you to fill it. And if you don't, I'm nothing. So I really spend a lot of time not in the public and really sort of like more in introspection and and in service. 
I sponsor a lot of women uh, in the program. I, I mentor a lot of, of women around the world, young female entrepreneurs. This next chapter of my work life and my personal life is all about getting away from who is Molly Bloom. It's about you know becoming a mother and, and transitioning to, it's not about you anymore. This next book I, that I'm about halfway through called Powerful is what I learned about power, true power. What I learned about how to kind of take these things that are very much a part of the human condition and a particularly part of the human condition with, with women and start to unwind those things and talk about the way back. And My life moving forward has to have some sort of meaning that is aligned with a higher purpose. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm no longer ambitious. I'm no longer a materialist, that I no longer want to make money because none of that would be true. But there has to be an attachment to something that is good and decent and purposeful. And sometimes I slip up, man, when I go to LA and I hang out with my friends, like I can feel it in me. That part of me is still there. And so I have to cultivate and feed this other part of me because that's the only time that I've ever felt at peace in the world and and happy in the world is when I started to build this sort of inner power and this purposeful way of living, this practicing principles. Because I'm telling you right now, I got the light in the dark and I can so easily go down that path. And that's why I say like, Doug, I really like tell you that I wake up every day and I try to, I try to do this stuff every day so that I never end up there again, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of people out there that feel powerless right now, right? For they feel sure. powerless over their career. They feel powerless mm-hmm. over themselves, their emotions, their relationships. So in the, in the last five years or so, since you've done so much work on yourself, what have been the biggest things you've done other than the 12-step programs and meditation to help you cultivate that power from within to completely transform your life? I mean, it falls into two categories, work on my mind and work on my behavior mm, Yeah, and breaking habits and starting to be able to look. We come in with this like stock legacy soft hardware, right. you know, yeah. it's still very much sort of a survival mode, like survival mode equipment, right? Very fear-based, very competitive, very nihilistic. And it doesn't so much work for where we live. And so like upgrading the mind, upgrading the emotions, the nervous system, starting to exercise power and agency over your own mind, you know, instead of just being completely identified with whatever is happening here, starting to take contrary action. And instead of pursuing your own well-being and, and you know, money and pleasure, starting to make that departure and allocate more bandwidth to being there for other people and, and being of service and, you know, all these things that I wanted nothing to do with. (laughs) Right. You know, I was a soloist. I just wanted to win and that's what mattered to me. And, you know, look where it got me. And another thing is, is that almost everyone I was surrounded by, even though they were so powerful, right. But look at them. So many of them don't really have any power. Like they can't control their impulses. They blow their lives up because they can't control instincts, right? Like how many powerful people have we seen fall for silly reasons? Yeah. But all these people that I was around that had so much money and so much privilege and everything, so freaking unhappy and so powerless, you know, kind of a slave to their own addictions, their own pleasures. I'm, I'm all about true power. 
You know, yeah. that, that's what changed my life. And true power is like being able to st- say to those prosecutors who are like, look, play our game, wear a wire, be a confidential informant, and we're going to give you all your money back and you're not going to go to jail. And being able to say, no, <laughs> that doesn't work for me. You know? Yeah. Like that, that's true power. Right. It wasn't making millions of dollars and having power over powerful people. I was a fucking mess. I think power is one of those things can, that could be hyper addictive. And you just want more and more of it, the more that you get it. Right. And because well, that type of power, that, yeah. that, right, right, right. So yeah. But I think the power that's not necessarily unhealthy and addictive in that way is the internal power where you're actually right. doing things for the right reasons. And because you believe in yourself and because yep. you're super comfortable with your own identity and where you're going and you're making contributions to your own life and to others. I mean, that's the power that I think is what's needed in this world. And where you're, when you're seeking power from, the external and from the world outside of you, that's where it can become so addicting because you become addicted to filling that void inside of you that isn't getting filled. Right. Right. But it never works. No, it's just more and more and more, you know? Yeah. Whereas this kind of power and, and also, you know, starting to make that move away from just yourself and your own needs, then you start to get filled up for sure. You know? Yeah. One of the things I often tell people to do if they're having a bad day is to go to a Starbucks or go to their lo- local coffee shop. I don't care if you drink tea, coffee, you want to get a bagel, whatever, and just buy the person in front of you or behind you a cup of coffee. Because okay. nine times out of 10, like what I found is that person, like they needed that for that day. And then what do you do? You feel amazing. Cause you're like, wow, I just helped this person have an incredible day. And all I did was spend yeah. $2 or $3 or whatever. And, and it takes the attention off of whatever is going on in your life. And it puts it onto something, somebody else in a, in a meaningful way. And, and speaking, I guess we kind of come to the end of our conversation. I want to touch on something that I wanted to come back to like your game and the game that you ran. A lot of it gets put in this negative context because of all the activity that went on around that, because of the feds getting involved and the mob and the illegal activity. But I think there was a lot of good that came from that and teachable moments that I think has served you well and who you are today and can be teachable to, to other people. So what were some of the things that, as you look back, that are tangible and, and transferable to other people who are listening to this that don't have experience, they have no idea like how they're going to make something work? But you were in that very same position and were able to do that yourself. So what would some some tips, some practical advice for people listening? Yeah, I, th- I think people tend to think it's more complicated than it is. Mm. And I think it's really, it's back to basics. I think the first thing is, is learn how to make people feel important, special, heard, significant. The ways to do that are to learn how to be a good listener. And there are so few good listeners. Most people are listening, but thinking about the thing that they're going to say next and just starting to learn how to like really cultivate true empathy and, and true concern for people's well-being and curiosity. You know, if you're not someone who's naturally empathetic, pretend like you're a social anthropologist and you're collecting data, ask people questions about their life. Like, do you know how much people love to get asked questions about their life? Most people don't do that. Most people, especially in this day and age with social media and self-promotion, they're talking about themselves all day. Go deep with someone, figure out who they are, care about what they have to say. The other thing is, is when you're starting a business, the details matter. Look at every single detail you can possibly find and figure out a way to do it 1% better. Do a lot of observing and, and journaling about the current system and where you could make improvements and then, and then execute. Learn how to take calculated risks. Do a, Get really comfortable with doing a lot of research and due diligence. 
information is so incredibly powerful. And then forget about whether you're going to fail. Forget about whether it's going to be perfect and just start to, to do it. That is how to make it perfect. Prototype one, prototype two, prototype three, prototype. You're probably not going to have a win in prototype one, you know, just keep trying things out and then do this work on yourself so that you can start to quiet the emotional chatting mind and start to hone this focused, rational, composed mind. And meditation is the way for that. You know, that will help you in sales in marketing in negotiation developing a better work ethic. Like it's just everything. Absolutely. And I think that those are, that's all great advice for people, no matter if they're chasing something professionally or personally, it could be a relationship and like paying attention to the details, being a good listener, making sure that you're doing whatever you can to, to meet your partner's needs and, and also meeting your own needs yeah. and having hard conversations. And, and obviously like what you just said, it transfers over into business stuff as well. And I think so many people are going to get a lot of value out of our conversation. I mean, we went deep on a lot of stuff between the the, the famous Molly's Game story and then your addiction story, you know, parenting. You know, we talked about recovery. We talked about healing. We talked about so much. So if people want to connect with you, maybe they want to buy your book. They want to follow you on Instagram. Like, where's the best place to do that? Yeah, probably Instagram or Twitter. I, again, like I've, I'm especially right now because I've just been so focused on this book and this pregnancy, I'm not super active on Instagram, but if I have an update, that's where it'll be. And it's I'm Molly Bloom. And then same with Twitter. And yeah, if I have something important to announce or, or something's, or I'm like, wow, I just discovered this strategy for, (laughs) for anxiety or whatever that that's where I'll talk about it. And then look for the book. There's a book, there's a documentary and there's a podcast that's coming out all in the vein of powerful. Wow. So that's where like my thoughts, my experiences, my protocols, the things I've learned have been taught. That's where all those things will exist. Well, I look forward to seeing all that when it comes out. Well, Molly, <laughs> this has been amazing. Thank you again for coming on. And for those listening, what I encourage you to do, just like with every episode is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that Molly said with her story and getting started with running the underground poker game. Maybe it was something she said about mindset and how she survived after her world, you know, crumbled before her eyes. Maybe it was something that she said about parenting, healing, recovery, whatever it was, tag myself and tag Molly, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.